0: Scientists have identified the key ways in which we humans are destroying the ecosystems on which we depend. Is there climate change? Yeah. I mean, will it change back? Probably. That's what I think.
1: How dare you? The British Conservation Alliance was launched by students in the United Kingdom to advocate for market-based environmental reforms. You should be empowered to deal with those problems. Lebanon, Poland, Spain, the US, the UK. Austria. It's just really cool seeing all these people gather to talk about these ideas when we weren't doing this a year ago and we're doing it now.
0: We can begin to defend the earth against the disaster of global warming.
1: The Green Market Podcast.
2: Today is February 10th and this is Richard Bernoulli, host for today's show. Our show focuses on topics revolving around market environmentalism ESG impact investing and the application of the Austrian school of economics towards a green social agenda that makes sense that works is is not uh, government based but uh, market policy based for our first program show we'd like to do a focus on how a local decentralized approach works towards a successful market environmentalism our participants today are Charles Hugh Smith Charles is America's philosopher we call him. He's a an author and blogger with a website of two minds.com, one of CNBC's top alternative sites with millions of hits. He's written several books that are applicable to today's discussion. Also have Marty Jimenez Mausbach is vice president and head of research at the Ostrom Institute, a think tank based in Barcelona, and Julian Morris is a senior fellow at Reason Foundation and Senior Scholar at the International Center for Law and Economics. Welcome, gentlemen.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thanks. Great, I thought we'd begin with a discussion on uh, your background, each of your backgrounds and current work. And perhaps we can delve right into a discussion on um, what's happening in today's world, the big, the big uh, lessons from the pandemic and uh, what are these lessons for climate change and governance? Uh, maybe you could begin with Marty first.
1: So, sure. So thanks a lot for having me. This is Marty. I'm the head of research of the Ostrom Institute. We are a nonpartisan think tank and policy advocacy organization based in, in Barcelona and member of the Atlas network. And we basically work on, on three main areas research, outreach, and advocacy. And, and of course, one of our areas of interest are evidence-based green policies and, and free market environmentalism so very excited to be here today very excited to partner with with bca uh, with the british conservation alliance with the austrian economic center with reason in this exciting endeavor thanks a lot uh,
2: great and uh, julian if you wanted to do an introduction
0: hi um, yeah so i'm julian morris um, and as uh, Uh, As already been explained, I'm a senior fellow at Reason Foundation and a senior scholar at the International Centre for Law and Economics. My work over the past 25 plus years has focused a significant extent on ways uh, of enabling uh, individuals and communities to address environmental problems through sort of bottom-up approaches. Um, So that encompasses the role of property rights and legal mechanisms as well as um, sort of inf- more informal rules and, and procedures uh, that might be established by communities.
3: Great, and Charles? I have to say I'm much more on the margins <laughs> of society in the economy. Um, just being, uh, you know, everything from a carpenter in my first 20 years after getting a degree in philosophy and, and, and having my own businesses, I've sort of experienced uh, free market capitalism in a, Um, in the U.S. uh, from the ground up. And uh, my recent work, um, my writing work, is on attempting to find a way around centralized, concentrated uh, political power and capital. And and my goal here is to combine sustainability, community, work, and money so that so that there's meaningful work for everybody that wants it, that's actually contributing to the community in a sustainable way and to the larger economy by doing those things.
2: Great, then let's begin with a, a focus on what's happening in today's world on the COVID pandemic. Uh, what, what are the lessons that the pandemic is presenting for climate change and governance? What, what are your thoughts, uh, Marty?
1: yeah i think that's that's a very good point so i would say i would begin by saying that that as governments are trying to recalibrate and and moving on from from the pandemic a a more localized approach to to international agreements be maybe more appropriate in in tackling global issues such as such as for instance climate change so of course it does make a lot of sense to um articulate uh, mechanisms of of, of global governance such as uh, open data uh, knowledge sharing, open science and so on. but we've seen when it comes to um, for instance uh, testing and tracing or uh, the vaccine rollout for instance, then uh, we do need a, a, a wide array of of solutions uh, competing uh, among them instead of a just one unique top-down approach and and then I also I also would say that, that the very relevant conclusion is that, uh, social trust and, and social capital has also been a very relevant, um, uh, yeah, ingredient when it comes to tackling um, the pandemic, and, and of course also when when it comes to climate change and climate action.
2: Great. And Julian, do you see similar types of lessons?
0: It, so I think one of the things that we learned relatively early on in the COVID pandemic is that the disease, the the virus, um, transmits in, in, in through clusters often super spreading events in, in specific uh, contexts and um, those governments and, and local communities that r- responded to the disease understa- with that understanding I think have generally be much more successful than those who've attempted top-down approaches. So a great example would be uh, the town of Vaux in Italy, which put in place a strict restriction on movement um, in and out of the town. So there there was one of the towns in Italy that that had the worst outbreak. Um, And they managed to clamp down on the outbreak very rapidly uh, by uh, limiting movement in and out of the town and by identifying all of those people who had the disease and and preventing them from interacting with those who didn't have the disease. So they they stopped the cluster. You also saw similar approaches taken uh, in Taiwan. Uh, again, restricting movement in and out of the country, d- rapidly identifying um, the places where there were outbreaks and clamping down on movements in and out of those places and uh, restricting um, interactions between individuals who had the disease and, uh, and those who didn't. By contrast, um, societies that had much more free movement um, and didn't impose kind of those local um, uh, uh, cluster constraining uh, te- techniques um, have, have, seen, have seen the disease uh, run rampant through their societies. So I think it really is a, a, a great example of how you know, local responses are well implemented. And it, this actually you could apply in, in Italy, right? So, so Vogue did this, but um, in, in general, uh, Northern Italy, most of Northern Italy didn't, and you could even contrast different parts of Northern Italy. Anyway, um, but the point is, I think that lo- local solutions have applied uh, rapidly and effectively um, managed to managed to sort of nip the, nip the disease in the bud. Then when it comes to uh, the sort of longer term response, I meaning those societies where you'd had massive community spread, um, you saw a much more effective uh, response in those societies that allowed decentralised approaches to testing uh, For the virus, so Italy, sorry, so so Germany, which um, uh, sort of uh, enabled uh, its local biotechnology industry and the private sector to ramp up and provide tests more widely throughout the the country, um, uh, had much higher rates of testing and much slower spread of the disease as a result. At least until uh, the second wave. Uh, By contrast, the UK, which sought to implement a much more centrally planned, top-down approach. Um, had very li- very little testing by comparison and, and saw a much more rapid spread the same is true in the US where the Food and Drug administration really sought to control um, the supply of, of mm-hmm. testing from the top down um, a- as a result it didn't have the, so when there was an outbreak in Washington state it, it sought to prevent um, local hospitals from implementing tests that, that they'd imported from outside and c- caused the, the disease to run rampant so local solutions implemented rapidly um, again was were, was part of the the more more effective constraining of the of the virus um, now you're seeing uh, the same happen to some extent in in the rollout of the vaccine so uh, the uk's learned from its mistakes previously and is, is implementing vaccine rollout um, much in a much more decentralized way it's 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 uh, enabling the supply of vaccine at pharmacies and so on and about a quarter of the British population, um, nearly has been has been tested as sorry has been vaccinated. As a result, is quite remarkable um, uh, success compared to nearly every other country. Um, one other example would be Israel, I suppose, which has te- which has vaccinated more than half its uh, its its country, but 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 much obviously a much smaller population using military and so on.
2: And do you see these lessons carrying over to climate change and environmentalism?
0: I mean, I think this is the the lessons are universal. That that local, decentralized solutions that are able to um, uh, be based off of local tacit knowledge lo- and and actual knowledge. So 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 the local experience, which is relevant, <laughs> um, are are going to be more effective. So when it comes to um, the the protection of uh, species, for example, um, this is very often a, a local phenomenon. The species are being subject to um, either habitat encroachment, or they're being subject to uh, pollution. Um, and the most effective solutions in those cases is to identify ways of engaging um, the local community so that they have incentives to conserve or incentives to reduce pollution. Um, so you can contrast, for example, the approach towards species conservation in in Southern Africa with the approach in, in uh, East Africa. In Southern Africa, uh, there's generally been a decentralized approach. So uh, individuals and communities have been able to um, have control over access to uh, species and also more importantly, perhaps benefit from um, ecotourism rights. And as a result of that, um, they've been able to gain resources from the from from the sale of those ecotourism rights by and they manage the the the, the, the populations of uh, indigenous species the rhinos and elephants and um, uh, water buffalo and so on that that tourists want to come and see um, much more effectively and you've seen an explosion in the in the numbers of, of those endangered species in southern Africa where local communities are able to benefit from um, the investments they make in conservation in contrast to um, many parts of eastern Africa where you've seen a decimation of, of species um, largely because the state has, has asserted a direct control over uh, the management of those species and made it very difficult for private or community owners of the species to benefit from that that those Forms of management
2: interesting and your thoughts charles
3: well i am uh, extremely excited to be in this discussion because um the the uh, as as julian just explained i mean the the pandemic response has been a kind of a experiment between centralized and decentralized and and the winning the winner of that competition is pretty clear I wanted to mention, too, that Marty, um, I wanted to pick up on something he mentioned very quickly, which is the loss of trust in centralized institutions and authorities. In other words, where the top-down approach has been implemented, um, there's been this tremendous uh, and pervasive and and very likely permanent loss of trust in these centralized responses because they failed in so many ways. And so that's the other, uh, I think, there's an important psychological element here, which is if you're part of the um, if you're participating, you have agency, then um, you're going to have trust in that local solution because you've seen how it was um, uh, implemented and, and adjusted to reality, and you had a say, right? You, you're a participant, not just uh, a passive uh, observer, and so that's another very powerful uh, force in decentralization is participation in what I call agency and and. I think what we're really talking about here is the um, is capital and agency. That's my shorthand for what really counts. You know, capital in all of its forms. You know, human, social, intellectual, and and um, you know, physical assets. Control of those, or at least influence over those, and of course having agency, having some say in how those um, systems are are working in your community, and then to. Um, To Julian's points, I think what we're we're seeing is decentralization allows competition of solutions and ideas and yet it also enables and encourages cooperation between communities that can then share the best solutions, what what we might call appropriate technologies, right? And so this is where top-down centralized uh, solutions, whether they be so-called free market, you know, like big tech, <laughs> or they be government, uh, they fail, right? Because they, they have no knowledge, really, and no way to impart the knowledge of, of, of appropriate technologies for each community. So I, and a broader point, I want to kind of tie in another uh, element of the pandemic, which is um, global supply and demand uh, and supply chains. And I think that what we're seeing is the breakdown of of extremely centralized supply chains and monocultures, right? Monocultures in agriculture, in in industry, in in tech. And in other words, the more centralized your capital and your political control, then the more vulnerable your system is to uh, supply chain disruptions. And I think that another thing that the pandemic is uh, revealing is that externalities are not being priced in in other words um, the loss of, of uh, natural capital or the erosion of, of community uh, agency and, and control or, uh, and ownership all these things have been kind of hidden away and, and uh, because the system seemed to work so well as a monoculture where there's you know four companies control all the um, all the animal products in the US or there's you know three semiconductor you know manufacturers or this kind of and that, that concentration of capital and control appeared to work really well in the neoliberal model. But it's, I think now it's, it's all of its flaws and weaknesses and its, um, its, its inefficiencies, despite its claims to efficiency, um, it's actually a very inefficient system because it leaves, um, leaves us vulnerable to disruptions in a way that a decentralized economy of open competition and cooperation um, is just not that uh, vulnerable because it's resilient and it's much, it's much more adaptable, and it, 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 it sort of distributes capital and agency down the pyramid instead of up the pyramid. And, and I think that's where we have an exciting opportunity here um, in the in the pandemic post
0: pandemic era. Great, I, I just add, I mean, I think that 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 also highlights some of the underlying causes of centralization. So you gave the example of 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 the concentration in the meat uh, processing industry in, in the US, which has in no small degree uh, been a result of regulation, regulation of abattoirs in particular, which has meant that there are there it's it's very, very costly to establish an abattoir, so there are relatively few of them in, in very spaced very far apart. Which you know, in the context of a pandemic where it's difficult to move uh, things from one place to another, and in which abattoirs were particularly susceptible to COVID, um, that there, there was a serious supply chain issue. Um, I mean, you you probably know that that you know, abattoirs are obviously in in, in in cold storage for meat is 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 cold. The places are cold and humid. The perfect conditions for the uh, for the transmission of the virus in this particular case. So, that, so the, and you combine that with this, with, the, with this concentration driven by regulation and you get a terrible uh, effect. Although I think it's worth distinguishing between you know, these concentrations which result from regulations and concentrations which result from natural economies of scale and, and the, the interdependency of, uh, of production as well. I think it's remarkable how well other industries, in spite of somewhat concentrated supply chains, have held up. Um, in, in, in in this. And I, and I think that those industries are ones which emerged or their concentration emerged not as a result of, of primarily of regulation, but just because of the economies of scale of production and, and the interrelatedness of, of production in different places. Um, but I will say that, that the things that have been done by governments in response to uh, Covid, in some cases, have shown the the ineffectiveness or, or in disutility of regulations. So you saw governments around the world uh, uh, basically um, weaken, uh, or I should say, say put put in abeyance uh, certain regulations in order to facilitate uh, greater levels of production of certain things, of of, of face, face masks, of of uh, medicines, and so on. And you saw, you saw as a result, a, a, a great profusion of, of new medicines or medicines that were previously uh, 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 used for one disease being applied for, for COVID, um, which wouldn't, wouldn't in the normal school, cor- course of events have been permissible because it would have taken a long time to get through the regulatory process. Um, and these things were, were, were just, it was allowed, it was a, there was a, a move towards um, a permissionless innovation and permissionless uh, distribution, of innovative products, uh, which I think has been great. And, and there haven't been huge side effects, huge downsides, showing, I think, the, the, the serious adverse consequences of the regulatory state.
2: Marty, what are your thoughts on uh, why and how does a localised, decentralised approach make more sense than centralised government in trying to solve environmental issues?
1: Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with, with what Charles just said about agency and, and the importance of, of having distributed solutions to, to global challenges. Right. So I would say that, that climate change is arguably an, an example of what we would call in economy a supersized tragedy of the commons. Right. So we all know it's better for everyone to stop wrecking the, the shared resource of, of the atmosphere. But individually, we'll have all strong incentives to keep doing the things that are, are causing the damage. And now what we are seeing is, is that we are working towards international agreements to try to regulate all that all that damaging activity. but however, when when we think of the international response to, to climate change, uh, our minds are, are cast back to the to the Paris agreement uh, for example of 2016 and yet these these international agreements also highlight the the limitations of of multilateral treaties um so it has also become fashionable to suggest that that profit is always achieved at the expense of the environment. But that but that is obviously wrong. So we, we need distribution, uh, localized solutions, uh, and a competitive market with well um, distributed incentives. And and their profit is basically a reward for providing value to others. So I would say that, that the key here is that achieving profit has to be aligned with environmental purpose. And, and therefore, uh, we need we need to produce more efficiently um, and more creatively but for that we need uh, as you've said tacit knowledge localized solutions and uh, distributed uh, agency to, to solve this this climate challenge and and um, uh, to, to sum up I would say that that the market system is precisely what enables us to get more from less so to, to get more from our economic activity while using less resources and we also need innovation and, and, and technology that, that uses less resources and adds more value to, to the global chain. So I would say let's let's add the right uh, incentives, the right nudges to the to the to the system. So put, for instance, a price on carbon. But then after that, just unleash the power of of market-driven entrepreneurial innovation and also um, this polycentric, uh, localized solution of of the commons. Right. So. Uh, innovation at the end of the day, and by innovation I mean, of course, entrepreneurial innovation. So, agrobiotechnology, um, smart mobility, smart agriculture, uh, safer nuclear power, and, and so on. But also, I'm also talking about the community power. And, and I will. I know we will talk about Ostrom in a minute. But by community power, I mean decentralized um, communities that are already today managing common pool resources, forests, water supplies, fisheries. And, and even urban resources, so um, in a sustainable uh, long-term manner.
2: Interesting, and uh, we note also that the Nobel Prize laureate, Eleanor Ostrom, has come up with a set of, of defined uh, rules of thumb and, and uh, guidance in market environmentalism, especially as it relates to, to localism uh, Marty, can you provide your insight into that? Uh, wh- what are the virtues of localism from, from the wisdom of, of Eleanor Ostrom?
1: Yeah, so so just to give a, a bit of context, so Ostrom was the first woman to, to, to win the, the, the Nobel Prize in Economic Science. And I would say she's also one of the more uh, iconoclastic thinkers uh, to, to win it. And basically, Professor Ostrom's work focused on, on these mechanisms of, of self-governance, that operate in different societies and she was basically studying local public economies and in particular the municipal provision of uh, police services but also the management of water supplies, fisheries, forestry and also um, development in in, in the developing world. And she was studying the rules that govern the behavior of individuals in their interaction both with nature and also with with one another. And for Ostrom, a key insight was that we need to find ways to encourage human cooperation. And in particular, we need to re- recognize that, that governance, and by governance, I mean the um, activity of collectively developing rules to solve social problems. Governance is not the same thing as government. So that, that's, that's a take home message. And if, if we talk about um, commons and, and, and Ostrom lessons uh, in terms of climate change. And if if, if we think of of the history of political and economic thought, the the source of of social order has been basically attributed either to the, um, let's say, uh, invisible hand of of, of the market, so Adam Smith, uh, most notably, and then we have the heavy hand of state control, like uh, think of Hobbes, for example, right? Um, But perhaps one of the best ways to understand Ostrom's work is to see it as as working out a, a Hobbesian problem by way of a, a Smithian solution. And, and that's perhaps a bit of a stretch, but, but not by much. So we are trying to find um, localized, uh, competitive, polycentric solutions um, to arrange uh, collective action problems. And and, and Ostrom's work on, on public economies and, and common pool resources focuses on what we would call rules in use, as opposed to rules in form. So, decentralized individuals and groups relying on to make decisions and to coordinate the behavior in order to uh, overcome social dilemmas and, and, of course, also environmental challenges.
2: And, Charles, how, how do you see the virtues of localism as expressed by Nobel Prize laureate Eleanor Ostrom?
3: Well, I really appreciate both uh, your, uh, your summary that you sent me in writing, Richard, and um, I've, I've taken a lot of notes very quickly from um, Marty's comments. Um, I think what uh, it shows is um, a sort of the, what, I, what I consider the ecosystem model of, of localism, which is um, rather than try to impose a monoculture of control, you know, command and control, then you allow uh, sort of like natural alliances and, and uh, natural incentives to cooperate, to, uh, to develop. And then you have, um, as, as Marty said, rules in use, which means there's flexibility and adaptability. It's not some sort of rigid thing like a, um, uh, uh, like a, a strict legal system, right? That you can actually work things out uh, cooperatively and, and that's a tremendous um, insight into how humans work and have worked over the millennia, right? That um, there is a need for, for for some structure, but if the structure allows adaptability and evolutionary, you know, solutions to evolutionary pressures, then it's, it's going to respond much more quickly and much more successfully than um, a top-down system. And... Um, You know, it's uh, this discussion of of Nobel Prize winners, I believe it was the previous year, there were two people that won uh, the Nobel Prize for economics and, and their work was about, they would describe it differently, but for me, it was recapitalizing local communities. In other words, when you give people capital. In other words, not just money, you know, like a donation from a, na- a non-governmental agency. Those typically fail, right, because those are top-down you know, solutions imposed by some NGO. When you give people access to all the forms of capital, and, and um, Ostrom's work is, is actually a form of social capital. It's like, here's a structure to work together on collective management of, 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 of local resources. That's a form of capital that's been lacking. And so um, I think that uh, part of what I see happening in, in Ostrom's work is we can recapitalize communities by giving them uh, these, these uh, intangible tools, if you will, uh, and, and structures, as well as uh, maybe access to better technology, better innovations, more efficient uh, production techniques. And But we also need actual money <laughs> you know in other words there, there has to be some capital available and i think that's the other exciting thing where we're um that, that this paper that you sent me discusses is we need to provide access for private investors to compete with global corporations because just to kind of tie it back to central bank distortions when you lower interest rates to zero and you you basically um supercharge the uh, Cantillon effect right that those corporations and financiers who are closest to the central bank money spigot can then borrow so much more cheaply than the rest of us. They can, they can outbid us for all assets, you know? And this is where we see um, one cause of, of poverty in, in the third world is that uh, corporate uh, people who can borrow huge sums of money thanks to central bank distortions can then buy up all the local assets and, um, and basically shut out the, the local community. So this one of the solutions that I think um, we're, 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 we all see is to allow private capital to um, leverage uh, local community efforts to control resources and, and make better use of them and earn a return. So to uh, Marty's point, it's like, if you wanna understand the, what the output of the system is gonna be, look at the incentives.
2: Great. And your thoughts, uh, Julian, on the wisdom of Eleanor?
0: I mean, so, I mean, Lynn Ostrom, you know, addressed a whole plan of different issues, as Marty has explained. Uh, but I think at the core was her understanding of the sort of interrelations between the the different levels of of legal rules and informal rules. So she, she did a lot of work looking at how different constitutional structures um, were uh, influenced the way that the resources were managed and people interacted. So this pertains to the ability uh, of people to own and control the resources that they are uh, notionally um, uh, living within or, or, or living on. Um, so and, and she con- compares and contrasts different systems, um, some of which work and some of which don't. So some, some systems for managing common pool resources work very well, other systems don't. So, and, and as a result of doing that comparison, she was able to come up with some broad rules as to what, what worked. But a crucial element of it uh, all was, was the ability to exclude others, um, the ability to prevent outsiders um, uh, from coming in without, uh, without being invited uh, to, to take uh, resources away from people who are living on those resources. And, and that ability to exclude, I think, is, is, is not unique to, to commons. It's a feature of property rights. Um, and the another great scholar who worked uh, extensively on uh, these issues, Harold Demsetz, Kind of explained I think in a sort of simple way that, that in Ostrom then developed more more elaborately um, that in a sense for for in any particular circumstance it makes sense to create property whether it's common or private uh, when the the benefits of exclusion are greater than the cost so the benefits in terms of being able to re- reap the rewards of your investment in planting the field or uh, providing um, a uh, uh, grass for, for cattle, or so, and so on. When those benefits are, are greater than the costs of preventing others from coming in, and those systems work very well, um, and they create incentives over time. So you can compare, for example, what happened in the in, in, in the eighteenth and early nineteenth century in the United States, um, in the western United States, where, um, where as as the as people moved out west, uh, initially. Uh, they, they took cattle with them, uh, but they weren't able to fence those cattle, cattle in. So they used branding to identify their cattle, but the cattle roamed freely on, on, on the range. So there was a commons, but the commons was managed. Um, but because it was possible in principle to create property, um, it, entrepreneurs identified ways of, of, inf- of closing the commons. They invented barbed wire. And that barbed wire enabled large ranches to be created, which enabled people to then benefit more directly from investments in, in improving the land and, and making it a viable place for cattle to live. And, things, and these lessons, I think, are important because where you don't have that ability, where, and where outsiders are able to come in, they can destroy commons. So you've seen this with fisheries around the world, where artisanal fisheries were managed locally. Um, but, but many cases in places like Brazil, but even in lobster fisheries in Maine, you have uh, the ability for those 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 people who are managing the fishery to identify ways uh, to to limit catches um, uh, that that benefit everyone. Uh, when outsiders are able to come in and take from that fishery without uh, any payment of uh, to to the to the locals um, and without essentially buying the rights, uh, you often see those artisanal fisheries being destroyed. Um, so. It, making sure that the, the 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 constitutional framework protects local individuals from invasion by others is important. I think this cuts to Charles's point about the ability of people in poorer countries to protect themselves from uh, it, it could be multinational enterprises or it could be local uh, politicians who are taking uh, kickbacks or some combination of the two. Um, those, in many cases, land is simply expropriated from people because the, la- the property rights aren't secure. They're not able to defend those rights in, in in the courts of law, and so there there you need to change the constitution so that individuals are better protected and and uh, aren't subject to that expropriation.
2: There's a, a concept of tacit knowledge that, as expressed by Austrian school economist Frederick Hayek. And this is knowledge which is difficult to transfer to other people through mere explanation or it's acquired through experience. And this is difficult for government officials who often live hundreds of miles, kilometers away to understand the situation. But it's the people in local communities that are better able to understand the situation best. How can this this, uh, concept of tacit knowledge be applied uh, towards market environmentalism in, in a beneficial way uh, how, how do you see that, um, Marty?
1: Yes, I think that, that's a great point. And, and just adding on, on what has just been said and the idea of, of, of both successes and, and failures when, when, when it comes to, to environmental um, problems. Uh, actually, Ostrom, when asked in, in a 2000 and 2010 interview for, for a single piece of advice on, on how to improve environmental policies, uh, Eleanor replied, no panaceas, right? So when it comes to designing better rules, there is no one stop uh, shopping. So unique problems require unique solutions and, and no size fits all. And I think that, that's quite a relevant Hayekian message to say as well. So Ostrom basically moves away from, from models that propose solutions for communities on, on the basis of, of preconceived ideals that are then imposed from above. And then she moved instead towards genuine self-governance. government and, and 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 I think uh, ocean's contributions were unique in the extent to which they emphasized the need to understand the problem solving of of let's say imperfect people in an imperfect world and, and and that's very Hayekian as well so um there is knowledge which which is difficult to transfer to other people through through mere uh, explanation and and that's a, acquired through through experience so um It is difficult for for government officials who often live hundreds of of miles away to understand uh, and manage an environmental problem or or situation. It is usually the people who live in the community that that understand the situation best. And they are the ones who have acquired this this tacit knowledge through living in that community and and working with its natural resources. And and therefore, these people are the ones who are best placed to manage these resources. So this this polycentricity allows multiple actors to be involved of course communities also the private sector entrepreneurs and and rather just having one body making decisions we need multiple institutions or individuals taking part in this process so um, the, the decision making should be shaped by by a variety of, of actors and, and stakeholders with with diverse backgrounds and experiences so I would say that that's the, basically the inter Twining lessons between between Hayek and and Ostrom. And your thoughts, Julian, on applying tacit knowledge?
0: I mean, I think it's actually a very, very important concept and one that is often ignored or not grasped properly by policymakers who think that they've got the solution to everything. And let's consider the problem of of innovations that might be beneficial for climate change. There is, I think, many people now claiming that the solution is going to be some sort of top-down massive programme of investment in innovation, um, so-called innovation, so top-down investment in research and development paid to various uh, private individuals, companies, etc. Um, I, I, the evidence is that, that over time, there's been dramatic improvements in energy efficiency um, and reductions in the use of energy per unit of, of, of GDP, euro, dollar, or whatever. Um, uh, I mean, you've seen a more or less linear decline in uh, the, the amount of resources uh, used Per, uh, per unit of, of GDP and also the amount of emissions that result from that. And in fact, you've seen an, an accelerating decline in carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions over the course of the past 30 years. Uh, and this is a result of a number of different things, but all of it pretty much, with a few minor exceptions, uh, is a result of uh, local knowledge being applied to develop new innovative products and processes that entail reduced resource use. I mean, any, any person who wants to make a profit has an incentive to, to make use of fewer resources to produce the same output, because that will result in, in, in more uh, profit, uh, especially if there is competition. So different people trying to produce similar things or produce similar uh, services will, will invest in ways of doing that at a lower cost. And that means using fewer resources in many cases. Um, over time that has resulted in a dramatic decline. If you try and then come along and say, well, we've got the solution to to this problem, it's going to be a top-down research and development exercise that will result in the perfect uh, technology, you will override those uh, inherent incentives and distort investments towards this preferred uh, technology or set of technologies, which I think is very dangerous. Um, and, And you've seen it to some extent with the bias towards uh, certain kinds of, of uh, technology uh, in Europe and the U.S. I, I, mean, I think one particularly egregious example is is the renewable fuel standard. So it's not an investment per se, but it's a requirement in the U.S. that uh, gasoline contains a certain proportion of uh, of, of basically ethanol. Uh, uh, it's Slightly more complicated than that, but let's leave it. That's that's the basic outcome. Uh, the result of that has been a massive switch in the in the production uh, from. From from food uh, uh, to to the production of ethanol, so corn and so on have been planted in order to grow, uh, uh, to, to in order to, in order to produce ethanol, and this is this has had massive environmental consequences. It's it's taken a lot of marginal land into production. That marginal land was habitat for endangered species and species in general. Um, so you've caused harms to the environment, but. In many studies, the, the evidence suggests that the amount of energy put in to produce one uh, unit of ethanol is, is about one unit of energy. So in order to produce a, a gallon of, of, of ethanol from, from corn, you're putting in about a gallon of gasoline. That makes no sense you've got a completely perverse outcome. Uh, and I think we, it's very important to, first of all, identify the the consequent, the, 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 yeah, the, the underlying cause of these things and then seek, seek to address that. I mean, fundamentally the underlying cause is that you've got a, top, a top-down approach to innovation and, and, and development rather than a bottom-up approach.
2: Oh, and your thoughts, Charles?
3: Yeah, I, um, again, have been taking copious notes from, um, both uh, Marty and and Julia, and I think um, the no panacea uh, that uh, Marty spoke to, it's it's, again, it's um, kind of a a way of of saying that without tacit knowledge, then um, we're creating a lot of systemic risks and um, there was, um, there's so many examples of that around the world where top-down solutions imposed by NGOs or governments simply don't work. And so all that capital is squandered. And so um, what we, you know, I think um, there's so many ways to innovate. And um, as, as Julian said, the bias is, is created by special interests in, in general, right? In other words, um, people who can um, leverage political power and and have the government regulate in favor of their particular industrial solution, right? And so that, of course, is anathema to what we're talking about. You know, we don't want top-down solutions chosen by special interests. We want um, we want, uh, localized, appropriate uh, solutions. And I just want to mention that um, when we talk about climate change, a lot of the changes are actually behavioral, and this again plays to the whole thing of of where. We're talking about community uh, cooperation and individual incentives, choosing what works best for them. So for instance, um, you can uh, price electricity that's generated uh, by alternative sources uh, by the time of day <laughs> so that um, you get much cheaper rates if you're going to use your electricity when there's sun shining and the, and the solar, uh, the solar uh, generation in your area is, is producing high high rates of electricity and then at night then you're penalized you know you're going to pay four or five times more uh, to use your clothes dryer or some very high uh, electricity consumption appliance and so uh, people will make the best choices for themselves and if they're part if they're a participant in that uh, the local regulation or experimentation with this kind of thing they're much more um, they have two ways to, to change the world uh, in a beneficial way. They have their own input into local control and then they have their own behavioral choices. And so I think there's a lot of uh, potential there uh, toward um, the, the kind of decentralized systems we're discussing making an enormous impact on global climate change.
2: Great. And I thought we'd end with a, the big question in terms of uh, how can this approach to environmentalism, namely market-based environmentalism using local decentralized techniques, how can this be promulgated by the world or to the world to, to use as an approach? Uh, can, can awareness be fostered and if so, how? Marty?
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question, of course. So I'd say that traditionally left-wing accounts have, have seen the case for devolution only in terms of of expanding the resourcing and, and ownership portfolio of, of, of local government while, while the right-wing accounts let's say on the other hand have have conceived of, of empowerment only in terms of of expanding uh, consumer choice. So I think it is in the context of uh, in this context that Ostrom's contribution in many ways defies uh, traditional political labeling and I believe This is very well in line with the work um, you guys do at BCA and and what we try to do at at the Ostrom Institute as well, of course. So Ostrom was not opposed to the use of markets or centralized state power, but equally she was keen to avoid the, what we were just mentioning, the panacea trap, which sees the solution to all socioeconomic problems through a one dimensional lens. So what Ostrom's work does um, is to emphasize a much greater scope for, for communities to craft these institutional hybrids um, through, through self-governance. And um, I would say that, that her work uh, offers grounds for, for ambitiously reimagining the relationship between people and, and institutions. And, and I think it should inform and, and inspire policy debate about community power, devolution, um, organizational transformation, especially, especially in climate action and, and sustainable development. And I think this this podcast is 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 in part an attempt to to reintroduce her her insights to to those who are unconvinced about the, the plausibility of of this community paradigm.
2: Great, thanks. And your thoughts, uh, Julian, for how to approach.
0: I mean, I, I can't I can't agree more that that um, leveraging community involvement um, and 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 individuals and companies. Um, to uh, to the betterment of, of the environment and society is, is going to be very important. it has been important historically and it will continue to be important. Um, uh, when it comes to addressing kind of global problems, I think there's been too little attention to the importance of decentralized activities, uh, the, the activities taken by communities by, by, and so on um, and too much emphasis on attempting to craft grandiose global, uh, solutions. Um, it would be delightful. <laughs> I think it would be good for the world if, if if Lynn Ostrom's ideas were taken up more more widely and seen for their for their relevance that they that they have. I mean, she wrote extensively on um, polycentric institutions in global governance. Um, but understanding within that context the importance of decentralisation to enable individuals to pursue their own interest in the way that, they, that, that in such a way that it, it benefits society framed within local rules and and and, uh, and and broader principles so I'm being very vague and sort of and 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 general but I mean but concretely I think this means an emphasis much greater emphasis on two things one, Um, enabling innovation to take place at a decentralized level so that you don't have top-down controls, reducing regulations. I mean, nuclear power was brought up as an example earlier. And if you contrast, for example, the cost of of a new nuclear power power station built in South Korea with one in the United States, you have just on the face of it a dramatic contrast between um, the, the, the effect of uh, uh, o- overarching excessive regulation in the U.S. It's five thousand dollars per kilowatt hour in uh, per kilowatt in in the U.S. It's two thousand in in South Korea. Um, so, re- re- so reducing that the excessive top-down regulation which is inhibiting innovation in that and in so many other uh, areas. The other side of it, I think, is adaptation. So a lot of work has been done now on how human societies can adapt to climate change. Climate change is happening. It's going to continue. We can't pretend that it's not going to happen. And uh, solutions need to be crafted in the context of local conditions. um, And that means that local individuals and communities uh, need to be able to take control of their destiny. Uh, And in many parts of the developing world, which is more likely to be adversely affected by climate change than the the developed rich world, uh, that people do not have uh, the the right to control their own destiny. They're, they're inhibited, for example in India, in most states, in India it's very difficult to own land or own large tracts of land because there, there, there are colonial era restrictions on the amount of land you can own. That is just ridiculous and it inhibits the ability of those people to get mortgages, it inhibits their ability to make their use of land more efficient, inhibits their ability to invest in solutions that will enable them to address it increases in temperature and reductions in water flow, so you know, these, these are the things that actually probably most urgently need to be addressed in the context of, of climate change. All the stuff about eliminating carbon dioxide emissions, that's a very, very long term process, And uh, but there are immediate problems that can be addressed in terms of reducing the impact of climate change at the local level. Interesting, and
2: Charles, your thoughts on the approach and fostering the awareness?
0: Yeah, I, I would just add a couple of
3: comments to what uh, Marty and, and Julian already said, which is what we're really proposing here and discussing um, is an integrated solution. In other words, the um, the, the top down overregulated uh, kind of uh, approach that, that Julian has has just critiqued. The problem is it, it do, it's not really integrated. Like it doesn't really focus on the fact that people need a livelihood. <laughs> you know, we have to we have to create work. That um, that's sustainable and 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 provides meaningful work to to households, and we need sustainable ways to generate profit, not just a, a slash and burn, and then you leave the wreckage behind. And this is what we're talking about: is the uh, the tacit knowledge of of the local communities is how to how to sustain profit, and that's and that's really part of of climate change, right? Is we need to provide livelihoods that. Um, that makes sense of, of local resources and um, I, to to Marty's point, I would just add that we need what we're really trying to fashion here is um, a new narrative that that bypasses this sort of stultifying um, dead ends of of the the left and right, right? Like. That we, we need a, a way of, of threading the needle, so to speak, where people start focusing on solutions rather than trying to label um, um, what we're proposing. Is it left or right? <laughs> you know, is it Marxist or is it socialist or is it, is it neoliberalism? It's like, no, it's none of those things. We're talking about solutions. And, and two books come to mind that, that I don't think are ideological at all. And um, they're part of the kind of solution that we're talking about, like the mystery of capital which was all about the the tremendous importance of establishing uh, easy-to-access property rights, and A White Man's Burden, which was a book by a guy that had spent decades working in Africa for NGOs, and on the complete and utter abysmal failure of all NGO top-down solutions to African development. (laughs) And so... I, there's, in other words, my point in mentioning those books is there's a lot of ideas that, that tie directly into our narrative. And, and I think, um, it, it, to Richard, to your point, how do we proceed? I think we need to create um, a narrative that, that, is, that people can grasp easily that, and, and understand it in ways that don't draw upon some sort of um, artificial ideological uh, barriers. To their understanding so that in other words so they don't just reject it because um you know it's left or right now we're, we're actually talking about a solution that that i don't think has an ideological core and i think that's um that practicality is is what um we need to speak to and then i think that will attract a lot of attention
2: that's great insight and how how can our listeners learn more about your work in terms of where they can find resources and uh, what uh, writings you have, uh, Marty?
1: Yeah, thanks for that. So they can Google uh There, they will find all our publications. We recently published a book as well, and yeah, we are also looking forward to, to keep on collaborating with with other organizations like like BCA or or Reason in this regard. So thanks for having me.
2: Great, and Charles.
1: Yeah, visit me at Uh
3: Samples of my books and are free, and my archives are all free.
2: Great. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a great and insightful discussion.
1: Thanks a lot. It's been a delightful conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks.